how reliable God is. He keeps his word. He's a, he's a really trustworthy partner to have in a contract negotiation. So the first part of the gospel is that God is faithful and he's reliable. How he does this specifically is the second part of the gospel. He does this by sending his son into the world. And through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who was perfectly obedient to God and God's law, he showed us how faithful and reliable God was. So the gospel is really that God has saved the world through the work of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. But there's another way that we use the gospel, and this is the third way we use this idea of the gospel, and the gospel is the good news. That when we believe this news, and it is news to us because we weren't there to witness it personally, nobody here is that old, right? This came down to us from other people, so we had to get the message about this from somebody. This good news came to us. When we believe the good news that Jesus is who the Gospels tell us he is, and that he has done what the Gospels have told us that he has done, something happens to us. We cross over from people who have no covenant with God or no standing with God to have a covenant with God into a new covenant and a new relationship with God where he is, continues to be reliable and faithful and we promise to be obedient to him. We choose God. We choose Jesus. If you want sort of a visual representation of it is, is we have a flag. Imagine there's a flag on the end of this. I'm not going to destroy this thing, but imagine that I'm waving a flag, and, and over here is the flag of sin and self and all that I'm doing myself, and it's on this hill that really is all about me. But when you, the gospel, when we believe it, when we submit our lives to Christ, we uproot that flag from that hill, and we take it to this other hill, and we plant it there along with many other flags of other people who have joined Jesus and have entered into God's new covenant community. So that it is by faith that we receive all these promises that God makes to us. And it has to do with obedience. It has to do with Christ's obedience to God, but then it has to do with our obedience to God once we believe that Jesus is who he says he is. So that's the gospel. And that word comes up so many times in Roman that it's, it's good to um, reiterate it. And then we always are fleshing it out every time we read it. Every time we read a new chapter in Romans, we see another way in which this is at work. So with that introduction, and remember the remote control, let's go to our readings, Romans 6.15. And here's how it reads. Paul likes to ask these questions, rhetorical questions. And remember what Brian had just uh, said. We are not under the law, but we are under grace. So then he's anticipating an objection already to his, that his audience may be raising. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves... You are slaves to the one whom you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, the gospel news. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You planted your flag over here. 
I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want you to remember again from several sermons in the past that we've been going, and if you're visiting today, this will just catch you up. That when we talk about righteousness, particularly the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but also about our own righteousness, it really is closely linked to this idea of obedience. Jesus' righteousness is that he was obedient to all the laws that God could have possibly made, and his obedience was so extreme that he didn't even find a way to keep himself from getting killed by the people who opposed him. He remained true to God the entire way, and he reaped the consequences of that obedience to God. And the consequence of obedience to God is alienation from the world. Jesus says this himself. He tells his disciples the biggest understatement in all the Bible. In this world, you will have trouble. Oh, is that all? Just trouble? Trouble's nothing. Trouble's trouble's when your vacuum cleaner won't start, you know? And you have to take it to the repair shop. That's trouble, right? This is a soft sell. There's a lot of trouble. When Jesus says, in this world you have trouble, he also says things like, you will take up your cross and follow me. Now that's trouble with a big T, okay? Obedience to God leads to alienation from the world. Jesus was completely obedient to God. And as a result, his righteousness was complete. And remember a couple weeks ago we talked about Abraham had this great conversation with God. He said, God, look at, God had told him, I'm going to destroy this city. I'm going to destroy them because they're so wicked. Take a look at it. And Abraham says, well, what if you find 50 righteous people in in that city? Would you spare it? God said, gladly, I'll gladly spare that city for 50 righteous people and the, and and." Abraham was a a good haggler, you know. I'm very bad at haggling. If somebody tries to buy a bike from them, I'm very good at driving the price all the way down. And it's all all me, you know. They're like, wow, that was easy. Just don't ask me to negotiate anything for you, okay? I'm terrible. I just kind of want everybody to be happy. But, But Abraham haggles with God, and he gets it down to five. Lord, if you find five righteous people in this town, will you spare it? Absolutely, yes. But not even five could be found. And so the the town was destroyed. It's almost as if someone said to God, God, if you could find one righteous person on this whole planet, would you spare it then? Would you? One, just one. 
And look at the scale that's different here. Instead of five, it's one. Instead of a town, it's all of humanity. So we're really raising the stakes on God. And I believe, and you can have your own difference on this, but I believe that somebody made that wager with God somehow, or that haggle with God. And God said, yes, for one person, one righteous person, I will save the world. And by the way, then God reached into his back pocket, so to speak, and said, I'll even give you the person, because I know you're not going to find him amongst your own ranks. And so God sent his son into the world in human flesh to share all the temptations and trials and trouble with a capital T that the world could give him and he remained faithful and righteous to the end. And for that reason, God chose on his end of the bargain, his reliable and faithful nature to keep his end of the bargain and thus to save the whole world because of the righteousness of one person. Uh, Victoria also Preached about that last week. Through one man, Adam, all fell, but through one man, the righteousness of one man, all were saved. That's exactly what that means. So, righteousness and obedience are connected and related concepts in Romans. Uh, Christ's obedience is his righteousness. When we talk about that, it's his willingness to do everything that God asks him to do. And if you look at the beginning of chapter 6, and I invite you to go back to page 1116 and look at the very beginning of chapter 6, it talks about our obedience now. How do we become obedient in this grand scheme that God has now embarked on with us? And it tells us that actually part of our obedience is baptism into the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? And he makes a very powerful and slightly scary comparison here. Don't you know that those of you who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? You've been baptized into that same obedience that God is going to save the world through. You have now identified yourself with Christ completely when you get baptized. And, and so... We talk about this sometimes, but if you haven't been baptized, we're not going to say that this is a huge deficiency and that you should really be concerned, but getting baptized is a really good mark of obedience for a Christian. I encourage you to be baptized if you haven't been baptized. And uh, if you don't like going underwater because you're claustrophobic, we could sprinkle some water on your head. It is okay. It is not, the, um, the way we baptize you has nothing to do with the power that God unleashes when you are baptized. Nothing at all to do with it. So I encourage baptism. I encourage baptism. Because here, especially and in other places in the scriptures, it talks about how baptism is our identification with Christ. And it is really one of the most obvious ways that we take this flag from this hill and we put it in the other hill. Baptism is one of those ways that we do it. Not the only way by any stretch, but one of those ways. But it's one of the most powerful and symbolic ways because think about what happens in baptism, especially if you are submerged in the water itself. And we've done it with our kids, you know, here in the pool over there where the Gatherlands live where they go under the water and they've been buried with Christ in his death. They've gone under the surface. And even though it's just for a few seconds, it's three seconds instead of three days, right? But they come out again to the newness of life. That's powerful symbolism. You, you 
You can't substitute that with much else. You really can't. So when we get baptized, we're crossing over into the covenant with God. It's not unlike the people crossing from one side of the Red Sea to the other through the depths of the water and coming out the other side, a new nation. And by the way, as they cross through the water and go under the surface of the water, they're saved from sin. And well, not from sin so much, but from death. This pursuing army that is about to envelop them, they're spared. They have new life and they have new hope. And, and beyond that, it gets challenging again, but that's just life. So these, these, the symbolism is just powerful. Now, when we come out again to new life, and again, look at, at uh, the very beginning of chapter 6, we rise to new life and a new life that has as its reward a resurrection with Jesus. We also identify not just with Jesus in his death, but we identify with Jesus in his resurrection. A resurrection that really is is different than other kinds of resurrections in the Bible. It's a resurrection that has no fear of death again. Now, um, I want to talk about Jesus' resurrection just as a short interlude here because it's different than other resurrections in the Bible. There's other resurrections in the Bible. Lazarus, remember him? He's raised from the dead. A few other people are raised from dead. A young man is, is coming out of the city of Nain, his mother's crying. He's in a coffin. Jesus touches the coffin. He jumps out, kind of like Rasputin, you know. Yeah, but he was really dead. You know, Rasputin kind of took him four times to kill Rasputin before he really died, evidently. Not like, but, but think about those people. That young boy, Lazarus, they were raised from the dead, but then they lived out their lives, and death was still yet a reality for them. They had to eventually die again. And so... In that sense, resurrection for them was really like the pause button. Does that make sense? The, the program's going on, somebody pressed pause. The screen was static, nothing was happening. And they were dead for a while, but then somebody pressed play again, Jesus pressed play again, and they lived out until the program ended at 6.59, p.m., and then at 7 o'clock a new program starts, right? So that's the pause button. That's pause button resurrection. You've never heard this before, have you? I just thought of it yesterday. It's pause button resurrection. It's not in the Bible that way because they didn't have remote control, but you have one. So that's pause button resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is not like that. When he's raised from the dead, even though he's human, does he stay on the earth and then live out his natural human life and die of old age or disease or something like that? No. His resurrection is qualitatively different than all these other resurrections. He ascends into heaven. He's transported up to heaven. He has a different ministry from that point on. He's with his disciples. He sends the Spirit. And so that's not pause button resurrection. That's channel change resurrection. You, the plus on the channel button, you know, there's a plus and a minus to go up and down. That's channel change. Jesus got channel change resurrected. He had a new life, a new program, and there's a program with no end time. Sort of that, like the music channel, you know, at the end, at the, in the 700s or whatever, the 800s, 900s. It's like a, a, a show that goes on forever, and it's the best show you've ever watched. And so that's what is being promised to us in this. And this is important. 
We're not being promised pause button resurrection, where we somehow magically come off the table with the clear, you know, and oh, we got, we got five more lives, five more hours in our life, pardon me, or we could get five more lives if you were a cat, something like that. No, five more hours and then, five more years, did I say hours? Five more years and then you're done. But when we identify with Christ in his death and are baptized into his death, when we're raised to new life, we receive a resurrection like his. And that's a new program, a new channel, a whole new life. It has a whole new plot. It has a whole new set of characters in it. It has a, a, a whole new conflict. It has, a, you, you could employ all sorts of artistic elements here, but it's a completely different thing, and it's geared towards a different thing. It's a different program altogether. It's a movement from one hill to another. It's so completely different. It's new life. And that's kind of what new life looks like. But there are some implications then that Paul says <clears throat> for sin and for law keeping, because we're talking about sin and law, and you're not under the law, but you're under grace. So here's what it is, really, is that since you have been raised in this new life, now you're going to die again of a physical death unless the Lord comes again, and may he come soon, really, uh, just looking at the world the way it is right now, I think, oh, might be a good time for Jesus to come back. But that's up to him. It's really nothing that we can, we can control at all. But unless uh, he comes again and takes us with him, we're going to die a natural human death. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the resurrection after all this. We're talking about the resurrection of a new life now. Actually, that starts from the moment of our conversion. When we baptize, when we get baptized and we cross over into that new covenant with God. And something happens in that moment. You die with Christ. And we'll see more of this in chapter 7. But you die with Christ and you die to sin. And sin now has no power over you the way it did before. Because you're not, you didn't plant your flag with sin anymore. And the law does not control your destiny in the way that it did before. This is why Paul says you're not under law, but you're under grace. The law is not going to determine your outcome anymore. Grace is. And this is true for us. Thank God that God's grace, his mercy, his unmerited love for us makes all the difference for us in this case. And so it's like double jeopardy, really, you, you cannot die again in a spiritual sense. You cannot suffer from God's wrath. It's almost like double jeopardy. God can't find you guilty twice. He found you guilty once, but then Jesus was obedient. And God saved you because of Jesus' sake. God's not going to then go and find you guilty again. Do you believe that? This is what the scriptures are saying right here. God's not going to, it's like double jeopardy. He's not going to find you guilty again. And, and I hate to put it this way, but it's almost like fire insurance, okay? Uh, if God wanted to, he could not find you at fault once you have crossed over into his covenant people. He made a promise to save the whole world because of his son's righteousness and obedience. And the thing about God is he's reliable. He's faithful. He won't go back on his word. He's not going to go, oh, I saved the whole world, you included, but now I'm going to start holding you accountable 
to what the law says. He's not going to do that. He says grace is going to be the deciding factor in your life from this point on, not the law. That's the new life that you're, that you're in. So, again, Paul knows that this statement is going to cause a lot of eyebrows to raise in the synagogue in Rome where the Christians and the Jews are gathered together reading this letter. Half of them are going to go, Whoa, wait, wait, wait. We're not under law? We're under grace? Doesn't that mean that I could just, like he says before, go on sinning so that grace could abound? Well, and I, I often think this. Do you know what I mean? If I'm covered, if I have this fire insurance policy, if God's not really going to visit me with his wrath because he decided to save the whole world because of Jesus' faithfulness, can I just get away with stuff now? Can I? Can I purposely go, oh, I'm going to make a list of all, like my bucket list of things that I can do. I could I I break all ten of the commandments. Can I do this? You could. You could try. But actually, and this is the thing, you can't. And by can't, I don't mean that you can't choose to. Okay? This is an important distinction. It's that you wouldn't or that you won't. Because it's not in your nature anymore. Does that make sense? I want to, I want to get that through to you. To me, too. I'm, you, could, you could choose to do all those things. You could choose to sin more so that grace could abound. You could. Like, you, it's within the realm of possibility for you to choose that. But that something has happened to you when you entered into God's covenant so that now it becomes practically impossible that you ever would. I gave this illustration a while before, and it comes from some history in my family. My mother remembers when the Germans invaded Norway. It happened in 1940. They invaded, they sent a navy up there into the fjord, they landed in Oslo, they, you know, all sorts of things happened. German uh, troops were everywhere. Their goal was to capture the king of Norway, and what was remaining of the parliament so that they could set them up as a puppet state and control them. And so one of the main goals of what little resistance and army that there was in, in Norway when the Nazis invaded in 1940 was to get the king out of the country so that he could not be set up as sort of a puppet of the Nazis. And so they put him on a train and they took him to a small town called Eidsvoll, and in a very Norwegian style, they got off the train and they had a cup of coffee and a few slices of bread. I'm not kidding. This is what they did. And then they had a, another train come and pick him up at that junction and take him to the north of Norway and to get on a boat there and take a little boat down to England. And he lived out the rest of the war in England and he would send radio messages to his people, his subjects in Norway, every week for the next five years. Can you believe it? saying, hang in there, I'm sorry I'm not there with you. I had to leave, and you all understand why, but I'm, I'm hoping, it's like Churchill, you know, I'm hoping that we're going to win this war and we're going to make it. Now, on his way to the north, and here's the thing, with literally, I would say, the forces of hell on his tail, the king could have told his advisors, stop the train, turn it around, 
let's go back. Right? He could, have, he could have done that. Right? Does that make sense? He could have, it would have been really dumb. It would have been out of character. It would have been all sorts of things. But he could have done it. It was in the realm of human possibility. But on another level, he couldn't have done that. Does that make sense? He wouldn't have done that. It wasn't in his nature. It didn't make any sense. It had nothing to do with who he was. Okay? And that's how I kind of like to think of this. We're not under law, but we're under grace. Our flag used to be here, but now it's here. And is it possible that we could go on sinning so that grace might increase? Is it possible? Kinda, but not really, because we've changed. Because God has transported us into a new reality and a new hope and a new life. We've been buried with Christ into his death and raised again to a new life and a new hope. And so we would never, we would never do that. We would never do that. So here's the really, really great news. Is that, yes, at times we're going to slip, we're going to fall, the old life is going to look appealing, but by nature we've been changed into a new people with a new hope and a new covenant and a new life that points only in this direction. Even though sometimes things pull us back this way, yet our destination is always there. It's always to the north. It's always to England, okay? And that's the reality that we're in right now. And so, one of the questions I think that comes up is knowing this about how our direction has changed in life, how our trajectory has changed, and our allegiance has changed, our obedience has changed. We're not sins, we're not slaves to, to sin and, and to the law, but we're slaves to righteousness and we're slaves to Christ. We're, we're obedient to Him. Yet at times, we live as if we continue to be under the law. Okay? And I'm going to read something to you here. I've made a list of five things that it seems like it looks like when I'm more under the law than under grace. Not that that's even really possible, but when the law seems to have more control over me than grace, when it's more directing my life. And so if, if I'm in the mindset where law is my guiding principle and not grace, this is what I would look like. I would have an overemphasis on my own shortcomings. I would mull over them endlessly, the, all the mistakes that I have made. And you can't have that without the balance on the other side of an overemphasis on exploring other people's shortcomings. Those two are peas in a pod. They go together all the time. Okay? So if I'm under law, I'm going to be paying attention to how so much on how I break the law, and I'm going to be paying so much attention to how other people break the law. And I'm going to worry, this is the third thing, that I'm not good enough, that I have failed God, that there's something defective in the core of who I am. And the fourth thing is that I know I am free, but I do not feel free. I don't have this freedom from the law. I don't have this freedom to be the person that God made me. I feel constrained, and my relationship with other people is a strain for me, not a joy. And the fifth thing is that I cannot easily think of anything wonderful to say about God or my relationship with Jesus. 
because to me that thing is just a transaction. It's you do this and I'll do this. You keep the law and I'll call you righteous. And, and if I'm in a place where I don't have anything wonderful to say about God or my relationship with Jesus, I might be in a place where I'm more under law than under grace. And if you experience this, I only have one caveat for this, one warning potentially. Some of these things could be symptoms of depression. And I mean this with all seriousness. Some of the things I put on my list could be symptoms of depression. If you felt many of these things for a long time, that's really something to pay attention to. It really is. Talk to me or talk to your doctor. We care. I'm not qualified to help you with that, but I can help you find someone who can help you with that. It's not good to suffer in silence with something like that. It leads to problems in your life and in your relationships. There's this great prophet in... um, not enduring this alone, but sharing it with somebody else so that they can help you and help you get, you find, get you to help. But put that aside, that caveat. We lose our joy from time to time. We emphasize our own shortcomings. We emphasize other people's shortcomings. We feel like we're defective in the core of who we are. We don't feel the freedom that comes from the new life that Jesus has given us through his obedience And we can't think of anything positive to say about God or or our relationship with Jesus. We lose our joy. And the amazingness of God's grace begins to lose its its luster to us, its attractiveness to us. And so I think what we need to do is to find again and again, reliably in places, that God is good to us. God is good to us. He's gifted us with many things. Now, some of us have more than others, so I'm not talking about material possessions. I'm not talking about talents. I'm not talking about any of those human attributes. I'm talking about the gift of his son to us. I'm talking about the gift of our existence to us. I'm talking about the gift of his creation to us. You look around, and you see how great God is. Don't you love Psalm 65? It's like a gardener's dream psalm. It's all about how the earth grows and things are planted and God sends the rain and he brings forth this beauty in the earth. God loves us so much that he enters into the most lopsided bargain ever. God is a terrible negotiator. 50, 40, 30, fine. One, okay. You know, and then he gives us the one. I'm going to try to sell a bicycle on Craigslist this week. Pray for me that I don't bargain like God. God's a terrible bargainer, but he's a reliable partner. He keeps his end of the bargain that he makes as lopsided as it is. And that's only a sign of his goodness to us. He gave his son Jesus for the salvation of a world that despised him. That's lopsided, but it shows the goodness of God. What a great God we have. What a great son has come to save us with his obedience. What a powerful spirit that we now have that can guide us into the new life. So you've crossed over. Don't forget that you've crossed over. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have crossed over from the old life to the new, from law into grace, from sin into righteousness, from rebellion into obedience. I could go on all day. Do you guys have another 20 minutes? I could do this all day, but I'm not gonna. You have something new and amazing. You've been set free. You're not under the law, but you're under grace. 
The question is, are you ready for what God now wants you to do with the freedom that you now have? And I want you to think in your own mind. I'm going to say this sentence a few times, but I want you to finish it in your own mind. I am set free, so now I can blank. The blank is for you. Think about it just for a second. I am set free, so now I can blank. I am set free, so now I can you fill it in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your greatness to us. Thank you for your reliable covenant that you made through your son. Father, set us free from the constraints that held us back and give us new life and new hope so that we can now do the things that you ask us to do in this world. Amen.